Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. Here we are. Welcome back to our weekly Gita Wisdom gatherings. So let's start off with our Guru Pranam. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityanamine Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschatyade Shatarine Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Gadadhar Srivasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrindam Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare we're in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, and th- there are four verses that are grouped together in verses 20 through 23 in that stage of perfection called trance or samadhi. One's mind is completely restrained f- from material mental activities by practice of yoga. This perfection is characterized by one's ability to see the self by the pure mind and to relish and rejoice in the self. In that joyous state, one is situated in boundless, transcendental happiness, realized through transcendental senses, established thus, one never departs from the truth, and upon gaining this, he thinks there is no greater gain. Being situated in such a position, one is never shaken, even in the midst of greatest difficulty. This indeed is actual freedom from all miseries arising from material contact. So there's a lot of information in these four verses, and having them all packed together is an advantage because you get a sense of the flow of what Sri Krishna is trying to describe for his uh, troubled warrior Arjuna. But it's a little bit of a jab in the ribs, and let's uh, discuss this a little bit, and then I'll explain why. First of all, it's impossible to start our discussion this evening without acknowledging the realities of what are going on around us. And there is a connection here. I'll see if I can make that succinctly since we only, <laughs> we only do these gatherings for a half hour each week. There was, a, uh, I think, a, a rather insightful commentary on um, a cable news show this morning by a um, fine journalist who lives in Washington, D.C., who was describing how when he was younger he remembered Democrats and Republicans getting together and knowing each other. And there was not this kind of divisiveness in Congress that we see now. Democrats and Republicans went to the same church, to the same synagogue, to the same mosque. Their children attended the same school. They would go to dinner together. There was a, there was a fraternity of participants in the government which allowed for a civility, and an engagement with positive, effective dialogue, and avoided the kind of bitter antipathy, the divisiveness that we're seeing around us today. I think that's critically important because one of the things that the administration doesn't seem to understand, and this directly relates to the verse, the verses we're discussing here, is that imposing martial law does well it, it doesn't do a lot of things you may be able to achieve a temporary peace but it does not address the causes of the unrest it also won't eliminate bad actors and that's something that the good guys i think also need to understand just providing officer training also does not improve character 
what these verses in the Gita address, in essence, is that there is more to reality than meets the eye. If we just attempt to unpack the circumstances around us from what can be viewed from an empiric perspective, just what our senses tell us, we will only see the barest tip of the iceberg of what's going on. There is so much more beneath the surface. And here, uh, Sri Krishna is describing in these four verses, what happens when you achieve a control of your own inner emotions that allows you to go deeper, when you allows you to access those deeper dimensions of what's going on around you. It's something that cannot be learned academically. This is where yoga culture comes in. Yoga is the effective technique. It is the process by which we can access those inner resources of deeper perception. The ability to unpack the mysteries around us cannot be done just by analyzing cause and effect, problem and solution. There is an engagement of the self with that larger reality that can only be understood by unearthing the core self, the Atma. That self can respond in an open-minded, open-hearted way to the circumstances around us and not the kind of knee-jerk reaction, which is often what we what we see in politics. Here's what's interesting. Well, I want to go through this description once more. In the stage of perfection called trance or samadhi, sama, of course, in Sanskrit, the word sama refers to equal, seeing things equally. In, in samadhi, one neither experiences the highs of excitement and of victory or the lows of depression and, and defeat. Sama, we have the equivalence in English of the word same. Same, not as boring, because it's all the same, but same meaning we are able to ascribe the same importance, offer the same respect to all circumstances around us because we recognize the hand of the divine is present there. In that stage of perfection called trance or samadhi, one's mind is completely restrained from material mental activities by practice of yoga. We've talked in the past about the, the function of the mind as being accepting and rejecting very, very quickly. The mind is meant to protect us from harm. And to do that, it has to act instantaneously. This is good, that's bad, move away from that, that's dangerous, come close to that, we like that. The mind is working very, very quickly, and in order to do that, it has to shut down 30, 40, 50 other processes. Contemplation, deeper reflection, considering from an alternate point of view, different perspectives. Those things don't help if you're in an emergency where there's a car coming at you and you just need to get out of the way. Self-preservation is a good instinct. Yoga is a resurfacing of those other sources of deeper reflection so that our reactions are more mature. This perfection is characterized by one's ability to see the self by the pure mind and to relish and rejoice in the self. Of course, now you have the goal of yoga. The asanas are not the goal. The asanas, as we've discussed, are the doorway into the yoga. The goal of the yoga is in the heart. It's coming to know ourselves as eternal beings. So here's what's interesting about these verses. I'm kind of shortening the, the descriptions here. There's a lot we could talk about. This freedom from misery that Krishna is talking about to Arjuna, which is what Arjuna was asking for. Arjuna is saying, I'm miserable. I'm here. I'm supposed to be doing this battle it's making me miserable. I don't want to be a bad guy. I don't want to cause harm to other people. What do I do to get out of this dilemma? 
I want to go away. So Krishna says, okay, you want freedom from misery. Practice yoga. Here's where that elbow in the ribs comes in. Because this description of freedom from misery has nothing to do with bhakti. Go to the end. If you want to understand the chapters of Gita, go to the last verse. Usually the last verse of a chapter is the payoff. It tells you what the actual purpose of that chapter is. So if you go to the end of chapter 6, for example, we have this very telling verse where Krishna says to Arjuna, Yoginamapi sarvesham madgantarantaratmana saravan bhajate yavam sami yukta tamamata of all yogis, those who with great faith abide in me, in love and devotion, are the most intimately connected with me and are the highest yogis of all. So here he is telling Arjuna, practice the mystic yoga and you'll be free from misery. Wink, wink, wink. That's not going to make you happy. In some ways, that materially comfortable position is the diametric opposite of the sharpening of our tools of perception and action that is the real gift of yoga. Going to that place where we come to trust our own deepest instincts, that surpasses all worldly satisfactions. The freedom from misery that many people rightly seek, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, after all, what's, what's the harm? Everybody wants to go home and have someone they love uh, to cuddle up with and feel safe and have a good, decent meal and feel that they're healthy and protected. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that if those are pointed out as somehow the highest gifts, then we're really missing what the depth of yoga can give us. If all that you teach your students is the asanas, you're denying them 90% of the real reality of yoga. Why is that? Because the thing that nobody tells us is how ultimately painful bliss can be. That's the problem with samadhi. You know, no one, no one tells you that when you get there, it's like a, a short-term relief from misery, but ultimately it's going to be very, very frustrating. How long, how long can you go on vacation? <laughs> you know, what makes us happy is when we're doing something, we're feeling excited about it. So there's a kind of sarcasm that I, I read into these verses of the Gita. Uh, this is, after all, the edge of battle. It's not the time for samadhi, right? Why is Krishna talking to Arjuna about freedom from misery and achieving this happy state of samadhi when what he needs to do is pick up his darn bow and arrow and get into battle and do it? What else would it be except sarcasm, right? So it comes down to this. I think through Arjuna... Krishna is speaking to us, and he's saying the same thing. He says, what are you doing now? What are you going to do? Are you going to go on as before? Are you going to capitulate to the lethargy? Or do we grab a hold of every moment of our life and, and wrestle it to the ground, throttle out every bit of meaning from it, make it real? Maybe to paraphrase what Krishna is telling Arjuna here is, are you just living or are you truly alive? Because if we're alive to the reality, the higher reality that's around us at every moment, Krishna will speak to us. Every atom of your day will inspire. That's real samadhi. That is the samadhi that is achieved through, through bhakti, through devotion. Listening to that great delineation of yours reminded me of an old Twilight Zone episode that had a little bit of this kind of wisdom to it. So it was this gangster 
who got killed by the police. And uh, Sebastian Cabot, was, his beard was dyed white and he was all dressed in white and everything. And he welcomed him to the afterlife. And he said, well, this doesn't look half bad. You know, I was really expecting, expecting it to be bad. And he said, oh, you know, everything you want. He explained everything, all the food he wanted and everything, all the women he wanted and everything. He was playing uh, pool, which was his favorite game back on earth. And he was loving it. He's like, wow, this is, this is great. But then after some time, he was just bored by everything. Like literally, he would never lose a poker game. He would never lose playing uh, pool. Um, no woman ever said no to him because it was like the afterlife, perfection, right? And he was just getting so bored with it. And he's like, like, I really appreciate, you know, sending me here and everything. He's telling Sebastian Cabot, uh, the angel. Um, but I got to tell you, it's just, it's just dull. You know, I, I want to lose a game every now and then. I, I want to have like an obstacle thrown in my way so I can get past it, you know, something. He's like, you know what? I appreciate your, your uh, intentions here, but I'd rather go to the other place. And Sebastian Cabot said, the other place. And he starts laughing. This is the other place. <laughs> so um, hell was just this sort of everything's going my way. There's like no more material misery. You know? And even in the more recent TV show, The Good Place, when they reached heaven, finally, it was just this place where everything was nice. But as, as human beings, as living entities, we want something more than nice. Mm -hmm. Nice is just like the ground level of what's to come. And I think it's in the, in the purport. Let me just look for a second. In Prabhupada's purport to these verses, he says, after nirvana or material cessation, in other words, after like the material life stops and you're not faced with all of that stuff anymore, there is the manifestation of spiritual activities, right. or devotional service to the Lord. And that's the beginning of what we want. Yeah. That's the beginning. The samadhi is a good starting point, but it ain't no goal. That's a very good point. Look, you know, at the same time, I have to say that I'm, I'm aware, I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted by, by the events around us just now. And um, pity anyone who's born black in America. I mean, I just have to say it, you know, uh, especially young black men. They're going to get arrested for no reason. They're going to get thrown in jail. They're going to be attacked by the police. Um, it's a, it's a tragedy beyond thinking. I'm hesitant only because I'm struck occasionally by the fact that we have these conversations at weekend. They're very privileged. They're very privileged. You know, we're for the most part living a comfortable life. We're not like Arjuna necessarily confronting an enemy who's attacking us, even though that's happening a little bit more often these days. So I just, just wanted to say that somehow the, the, the pleasure that I always take having these discussions with you all every week is somewhat tinged just now with the events um, around us. But the events also show us what happens when the more intensified this identification with the body becomes. So if you're a racist cop and you see black skin, that's all that person is to you. Is just this this superficial external, or if you're one of the the looters who are using this injustice in order to get something for yourself, you know, again, it's this this concept of me that which is steeped in ignorance. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna take this for myself. 
It's just a complete distortion, which is what the age of quarrel and hypocrisy is about. It's complete distortion and perversion of truth and any kind of reality. There's a question in the chat box. Is sama in samadhi uh, equipoised? Does it mean to, could it mean to be concerned but not disturbed? It's an interesting observation. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. The place of the yogi, when I say you go, I'm, I'm not talking about your everyday <laughs> yoga class, but the, you know, there's a, there's a percentage, my experience has been that in every yoga studio, there's a percentage of students who really want to go deeper. They want to understand what's going on behind this. Where, where is this taking me? Where can this take me? What, what's the real benefit? You know, how do I extend this off the mat, some, so to speak? How do I live this life? What does it mean to live this kind of life? Um, there is, to my experience and from what I'm studying in the Gita, an ability to engage in the world with deeper understanding of what's happening and therefore a more effective way of engaging with it. So that it's not a moving away from the stress, it's a going inside the stress to be able to unpack it more effectively and therefore to be able to deal with the causes and the solutions are therefore more lasting. Whew, get into some heavy stuff very quickly here, don't we? Anyone else want to chime in? You're welcome to. Has, has anyone else been... No, I'm sorry. I know I feel I must sound a little rattled by things. How is everyone else handling things that are going on out there just now? Um, yeah, it's not. There's so many layers to this that it's hard to even know where to begin. You just kind of start wherever you can and work your way through. Um, I know that I have uh, my friends and I have had a lot of really in-depth conversations about what's going on in the world today, and especially what's been going on with all the. Um, the protesting, and then also the looting. And some of the looting, I think, is does come from a place of, of ignorance. But I think most of it comes from so many generations of despair, so many generations of oppression, so many generations of inequality, so many generations of a lack of justice and a lack of fairness, that after a while you just explode. And, you know, some of the, some, some of the people who are participating in the looting are coming from, you know, communities and families that have had nothing and have had nothing for years. And they're coming from uh, areas where not only are they being killed off from the virus, but they're also being killed off by police. And it, they don't know how else nothing else has seemed to work for them it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we studied in in the Gita is like at what point do you abandon peaceful conversation and to try to to get along to cooperate with those who are different than you or those who have a different perspective than you and then at, at what point do you just give up on that and then take up arms because there doesn't seem to be any other way for the other side to hear you well, and, nice connecting of the dots there, Sheriff. <laughs> Thank you. This came up uh, with my friend Brian uh, just uh, earlier, uh, was it yesterday we were talking about this, that there is a, um, there has to be some point of tangency, right, between historic reality and ahistoric reality, between the uh, institutional racism, the systemic racism, 
the historic racism and the addressing of that problem, not just with legislation. I think that's the thing that we inside this discussion have an opportunity to really grapple with. If you just pass legislation, if you just attempt to mandate equality, mandate rights, that does nothing to change people's hearts. The, the bad actors, the government-sponsored racism will continue because the internal mechanism of behavior, the understanding of self has not been elevated. It hasn't been rectified. So the discussion with Brian was about where does yoga have a place in this conversation? What is the seat that we can take at the table? It's a tough, tough question. I don't think there's any simple answer here. For one, we have to know the issues inside out. And I, sometimes I think people get into trouble with all the best of intentions. They have a little understanding that yoga speaks to a more enlightened, peaceful, productive way of living. And then they get themselves into trouble because they go into situations that they're really not prepared to handle. They don't know what the issues are really all about. They haven't studied the terminology of those issues. They don't know what the peripheral communal issues are. They're, things are connected many, many, many complex ways. There is something we've discussed in previous classes called track two diplomacy, where peacekeepers, many of them very often from a faith background, sometimes a yogic background, a spiritual practice of some kind, are able to go into situations of violence, conflict, even armed revolt, armed engagement, and achieve a peaceful resolution, a detente, an understanding, a putting down of arms, where the other usual agencies, military agencies, financial agencies, government, NGOs, have failed. Why is that? Because the peacekeeper, that track two diplomat, track one diplomat is people like uh, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, Henry Kissinger, you know, people who represent the government, and they go in and try to make peace. The warring factions won't trust them because they know, listen, you represent the United States and everything you do is going to be reported in the newspapers. I can't confide myself to you. But this other person, this track two diplomat, this elevated yoga practitioner, if you will, you're a person of God. I know I can trust you. I will give you secrets and messages to give to my opponents that I can't even share with my immediate circle because if they knew that I was negotiating with the other side, they'd cut my head off. I've seen this happen. I've seen track two diplomats at work between Israelis and Arab leaders that no one even knew these meetings were happening. It was possible because there was that platform of trust that you may not like me, but I know you have my best interests at heart, so I can talk to you. I think that's where yoga has a place here. I think that's where we, as potential agents of change in the culture, have a role to play. But that's something that has to be earned, that you don't just take your 200-hour TT and then go out and make peace. It doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, we're, believe it or not, Time flies once again when you're having fun. We're at the end of our half hour. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I cannot tell you how much I savor my time with you. You are my Sangha. I love you dearly. And please join me with your Vaishnava Pranam. Vanchikalpaturubhyascha kripa sindhubhyaibhacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavibhyo namo namaha. Be well, be safe. Read the commentary to these verses from the Gita. Prabhupada does a Extraordinary job of offering insight. So, quoting Patanjali, by the way, to clarify the meaning of these verses from Sri Krishna. I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good evening to everybody. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org.